a wonderful truth that God is able to keep us from falling. And to Him be glory and honor forevermore. Well, uh, welcome to Grace Community Church. I know some of you, many of you maybe, are here for the very first time. We are very glad you're here. If you will come back next week and stay after church, you'll be glad that you're here because we're having a potluck that will be of unbelievable proportions. Food lined up over there. But that is to remind those of you who can and will be cooking next week to cook a lot because uh, it is unbelievable how much students can eat. Paul, where did I see Paul? Is Paul in? Paul Troth, he was in the first. There he is. Don't tell the football players about the potluck next week, okay? Everybody but football players are invited, actually. They are more than invited, too. But if you're a student and you have any way to bring some food, we would appreciate it if you would do that also. Well, change is good. At least that's what we're told. Change is good. I suppose it depends on what it is you're thinking about. Change. Changing. Today is a day of change for many of you, especially those of you who are here at Campbell University and you are freshmen. Then today is a day of, of, of monumental change for you. Life will never be the same for you again. I mean, you're, you're probably, some of you are never going to spend uh, much time at all in the home where you grew up, or at least any length of time. You may be there for a couple of weeks uh, when you in the summer or at the holidays, but you've entered a new stage of life. And a new stage of life, like entering high school or, or, or going to college or getting a new job or getting married or welcoming a, a baby into your family, all those are exciting changes. Linda and I, my wife and I, were always excited when our kids entered this new stage, even when it meant that they were leaving home. It's not that we were glad to see them go, but we were excited for them as they were beginning to discover that the God of their parents cared just as much for them as He did uh, for, for us. When you first leave home or go to school, get a job, get your own apartment, it seems as though the world is before you. I mean, it can be a bit frightening, but it can be thrilling as well. All of a sudden, life is open up. I mean, there are so many opportunities, so many choices about what profession you're going to find yourself in or about where you live or who you'll spend the rest of your life with. All of those things are exciting prospects when you think about the future. Sometimes it seems like choices are overwhelming. I mean, there are so many choices, it's hard to know where to begin. Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. Where to begin with choices that are in front of us for life. And this isn't just for freshmen, it's for every single person here. Furthermore, what makes this this talk worth considering is it's not I that's, I'm not the one who's given these clear-cut choices. It's God speaking directly to us through His Word. The title of the message this morning gives you a little bit of an idea of where we're heading. Two kingdoms, only one life. Ultimately, we're either going to follow God's path or we're going to follow our own path. The temptation is great in a new stage of life to draw on our own wisdom and follow our own instincts. Whether that stage is, is a difficult stage, like you're beginning to recognize that you ain't as young as you used to be. And you're getting old, actually. Or, or maybe cancer has come upon you and, and, and now you're looking at a, a shortened life. Even though you're very young, it's, it's different. 
It can be difficult like that, or or it can be a good change like school or marriage or an exciting job. The tendency is to seek our own wisdom, but we would do well in those times, especially times of change, to seek God's wisdom. In Matthew 13, Jesus taught extensively about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew was the only writer of the four Gospels who used this term, kingdom of heaven. All the others use the term kingdom of God, and it's interchangeable. It's basically the same thing. And I'll, as I talk about it today, I'll use the term kingdom of God a lot more than kingdom of heaven. There are sev- several parables in Matthew 13 that, that Jesus used to teach extensively about God's kingdom. But we're only going to look at two very, very short parables that tell us about the value, the great value of God's kingdom. It's our custom here at Grace Community Church when we read the primary text to stand in respect for God and His Word. And so if you would, please stand and we will read Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. And if you have your Bible, please turn there. It'll be on the screen, but please be looking in in, in your Scripture, in the Word also. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Kingdom of Heaven. It's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, it's pretty clear to us the point that is being made in these verses, and yet there's still so much for us to to discover, just as the people in these stories discovered a great treasure. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts this morning, speak to us and bring us to the place that you want us to be. You've brought us here intentionally, we're gathered together today. This was planned before the world ever began. And may we be open and responsive to the things that you want to say to us on this day. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus was using parables, stories that communicated a great truth about a particular subject. Sometimes the truth was far bigger than the story was told. David talked a little bit about that last week, about how allegory and stories can tell so much more than actually is involved in the story itself. In the first of these two parables, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. In the second, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Obviously, we got to be careful about not trying to read too much into every single aspect of the parables. You may have heard that the buried treasure in these two parables represents the nation of Israel and the pearl represents the church. Trust me, that's not what Jesus was saying. Even if you want to make particular points, you don't have to go there with these two parables. He was simply saying that the kingdom of God is of tremendous value, of more value than anything known to man. The kingdom of God is incredibly valuable. So what is the kingdom of God? It's the place, it's any place really, 
where God rules his people. When God created Adam and Eve, he ruled completely and perfectly until they sinned. God still ruled his people Israel as they obeyed the law, but it was an imperfect kingdom because of human failure. There was no way it was going to be like it should be. It was an imperfect kingdom. Jesus came to set right what Adam and Eve had ruined in the first place. It's one of the reasons that 1 Corinthians 15.45 says that Jesus calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam came, he had a chance, he had this incredible world that God had made, created this beautiful creation in which he could live. And he was only given one command, one command, and he disobeyed it. Just don't eat of this tree. You know, I've understood for a long time that Adam was the representative of the human race. And that when he sinned, we all sinned. I understand more and more that I may as well have been right there with Adam. Choosing my own way. Choosing the way of disobedience and the way of rebellion. So Jesus came and got right what Adam messed up. Messed up in John eight twenty nine. He said, Jesus said, "I always do the things that are pleasing my Father." Always. Jesus lived a perfect life. None of us can say that. I mean, it's great if we can say, "I usually do the things that please my Father," or "I often do the things that please my Father." Jesus said, "I always do." The Gospels tell us that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's very near. And you need to live differently than you're living. Understand yourself in the same light that God sees you. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. On the cross and at His resurrection, Jesus fully conquered death, confirming His authority as absolute King. It's rather clear that God's kingdom is not yet fully established since not only non-believers, but believers are like Christ followers. Sin every day at some point, and we will until the day we die. Not that that's an excuse. Our heart ought to be following the Lord at all times, but we will sin until the day that we die. So, is the kingdom of God only in the future or is it now also? Let's look at Luke seventeen twenty to 21 for the answer. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, some of you have translations that say the kingdom of God is within you. That is not a good translation. I believe the NIV says the kingdom of God is within you. I mean, think about it. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, those who opposed him violently, who ended up having him killed. These were the religious leaders of the day, and 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 they were not looking for the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. They, in fact, thought that the Messiah would come to earth and would be a political Messiah. He would conquer Rome. He would throw off the the yoke of Roman rule. And that he would establish a worldwide kingdom led by the Jews. And at the head of that worldwide kingdom was the Jewish Messiah. And the Jews would be reestablished to the place that they deserved, at the top of the heap. Now, as the religious leaders of the day, these 
Pharisees were convinced that they could read the signs. They, they, they could understand the tea leaves, you know. They could, they could know when the Messiah would be coming. And they would say, well, look, there's evidence of the Messiah or it's over here. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You're looking all around you and the kingdom of God is in your midst. Literally, he was saying, it's right in front of you. It's me. I am the Messiah, God's Messiah, God's Son, literally God in the flesh, standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. So the kingdom of God already exists. It's not in the future. It's right now. It is, in fact, in front of us in the same way that it was in front of those Pharisees on the day that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But we don't see all the splendor of God's kingdom. That's, that's clear. Immediately after these verses, Jesus went on to tell his disciples about the coming kingdom of God when he, Jesus, will rule in absolute power and authority and all will obey him. It's part of the already not yet tension with which Jesus' followers live every day. Already I'm saved but not like I'll be saved from myself and from the entire world in sickness and in misery when either at my death or when Jesus comes back. Already I have power to overcome sin, but sin still has some kind of power over me and I find myself doing things that I regret terribly. But there's going to be a time, not yet am I made perfect, but there will be a time when I will be. Already I know Jesus I have a relationship with Him and I'm getting closer all the time. But it's nothing like it's going to be when I see Him face to face. Can you imagine what that'll be like? So with regard to the kingdom, all those who know Jesus as their Savior are part of the kingdom of God already. But since we have not yet been made perfect, we don't always live as subjects of God's kingdom should live. We've got choices to make. Now, in the introduction to this sermon, I talked about how there are so many choices before us. And in fact, we have more choices today than ever before. What in the world am I going to do with my life? I, I wrote part of this, um, um, this message at Barnes & Noble. Any Barnes & Noble lovers in here? All right. Six of you can read. The rest of you don't are illiterate. I, I'll try to bring this down a little bit. Um, <clears throat> What a great place for a book lover. What a horrible place for a book lover who has a lot of interest. I mean, if I'm reading one book, just think of the thousands of books in this place. I mean, I, I literally, I was writing this sermon, and I just looked up, and I looked at all the books, and I, and I, and I know I could just go down the shelves, and I, I, this one, this one, this one, I'd love to read them all. It's, sometimes it can be overwhelming, almost distressing with all the choices that are in front of you. So for the remainder of time, let's narrow the choices that are before us down to two. Very simply, God's way or my way. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world, which always becomes the kingdom of me. That's a kingdom I, I really like. In fact, spend a lot of time there. But the choices are pretty simply. simple. Two kingdoms, but I only have one life. To live. So what it boils down to is who's going to be the ruler of my life? Jesus, the king, or me, the king? I, the king. Who's king in my life? I absolutely cannot live well in the kingdom of God if I am enamored of 
and constantly in pursuit of the kingdom of this world. Ultimately, it's going to be one or the other. Let's go back to our primary text, Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, to gain more information about the choices that confront us day to, well, really, hour, minute to minute. I mean, the choices that are in front of us, minute to minute. In this first parable, there's a man who, who's working in a field. Now, most likely this is a peasant, and, and, he, and he's digging, and he comes upon a treasure. You know, it's probably picking at it at the ground or something, and he hears this clunk, and, and he digs a little bit, and there it is. I mean, it's, you know, almost everybody's dream to find a hidden treasure somewhere. Most likely, as I say, this guy is a peasant. And most likely, this treasure does not belong to the landowner. I mean, by the time that Jesus told this story, Israel had seen centuries of one conquering army after another. Now, if an army's coming in, if it's a time of peace, most likely the landowner is going to keep his treasure somewhere safe in the house or close to the house, and he's going to keep it well protected. Uh, they didn't. They weren't able to put stuff in the banks or, uh, or safety deposit boxes in that day. So you had to pretty much look after your own treasure. And people were very creative, but either it was generally in the house, but if a conquering army was on the way and it was clear, we ain't got a chance in this war. Uh, we're just going to be defeated. But good possibility, I'm not going to be killed, and I want to be able to keep my treasure, so I'm going to f- hide it somewhere so that the that the Babylonians, that the, the, that the Assyrians, that the Romans don't get it. The Greeks, whoever it is that's coming in, they're not going to get this treasure. And so, occasionally, the landowner would be killed or would die for some other unexpected reason before anybody else knew about the treasure. And, and, and the land would pass from one family to another and a peasant's out there and he comes across this treasure and he says, you know what? There's no way that this treasure belongs to the guy who owns this land. So he hides it, and he goes and sells everything that he has, and then does the old Middle Eastern bargaining. You know, hey, look, this land is not very good, but I I think I can do something with it, and I I would just like to buy it. And the owner's thinking, well, you know, it really isn't that all that good land, and he's offered me a pretty good price, I think I'll do it. And look what he gains. In the second parable, it's a, it's a bit different. I mean, in the first parable, the worker found this unexpectedly. In the second parable, this man is looking for pearls. He's looking for valuable pearls. And he stumbles across one day this pearl that he knows is of exceeding great worth. Apparently, the owner is not aware of what he's got. But it's not cheap, even though... It's worth more than he's going to pay for it. It's not cheap. It cost him every single thing that he has. He sells everything and he buys this pearl so that he can possess it. Now, once again, don't read too much into the specific details of the parable, such as the kingdom of God is something that some people uh, find accidentally and, and some discover because they're seeking for it. They've been searching. It's true that many people search for, the, for, for, for truth and meaning in this universe and they find God, but we're going to discover next week in, in 1 Peter as we start our fall study in, in that book that, that God was the one who was doing the searching. And, 
And, and, and he puts this desire in our heart. He draws us to himself. And then he gives us this incredible treasure. This treasure of Jesus. The primary truth in, in the Matthew 13 parables is that God's kingdom is a treasure. And since Jesus is central in God's kingdom, we can say that when someone finds Jesus, when he's brought to Jesus, he finds a, a treasure. And Jesus is a treasure that too many of us, I fear, take for granted. How much of a treasure is Jesus? In both of these parables, the man sold everything that he had. He gave up everything in order to possess the treasure. And that's what Jesus requires when we come face to face with Him. Everything. But most of us don't want to give up everything. Even it's Jesus. Even if it's Jesus that we're gaining. We want to keep a foot in the kingdom of this world rather than enter totally into the realm of God's kingdom. We're, we're, we're sort of hedging. We're, we're holding back a little bit. Well, I sort of want to do it. And I sort of don't. You know, like it the amusement park when you sort of want to get on that roller coaster and you sort of don't. And you're, you're, you're at the beach and you sort of want to go in that ocean, but you're afraid the Jaws music will start playing, you know, any minute. And it's what a little boy told his mom. She said, be careful out there, son. And he said, don't worry, mom. When I hear the music, I'll come out. You know. Uh, and so, which... Well, no, I, I just won't even go there. I won't take the time. Well, how can I not? It's too good a story not to tell. My, my two daughters, just about the only thing that when I, we lived in the mountains and we would get two and a half channels. I mean, that was about it. Uh, CBS, NBC, and sometimes ABC, sort of halfway. And there weren't a lot of shows they were allowed to watch and Little House on the Prairie was one of them. And so they were playing with their dolls one day and they were talking. And Linda, my wife, overheard one of them say, start doing, and say, okay, the music's getting scary now. One of y'all go out and get dead. See, but that's the deal with, with the kingdom. I mean, when we think about the kingdom, we start to hear music. And some of it's a little bit disturbing because if it requires everything that we have, we're a little bit afraid of that. We kind of want to hold back and not give up everything. Why? Well, for starters, this world is very real to us. It's so tangible. We can taste it, smell it, sense it. All of our senses are engaged in this world. And when it comes to the kingdom of me, well, that's really real. I mean, it's, it's very enticing at times and it's, it's demanding at times. You got to do this. You got to do that. Or, hey, you really want to do this. You really don't want to do that. And we look at the kingdom of God. What's required? Sell everything you got. Give it all up. And the problem is the kingdom of God's not so visible. I don't see so much. So I am prepared to go part way with the kingdom of God. I'm prepared to go part way with Jesus. I'll go to church, I'll get involved in this and that, but don't expect me to be fanatical about something that I can't even see. 
But to play halfway at the kingdom of God is not to play at all. It's not to play at all. If Jesus is to rule our lives, then we have to give him total control. Now, I'll make sense of that a little bit later. It's not perfection that we're talking about. The good news, according to the parables that we've read today, is that it's really no sacrifice to give him everything because we gain a treasure that is far more valuable than anything we possess or anything that we ever could possess in the future. In fact, the man who discovered the treasure in the field, it says that he sold everything with joy. I mean, it's just like, I am delighted to sell all of this and give all of this up so that I can gain that which is far, far, far more valuable than that which I'm giving up right now. So why are we so often guilty of stopping short of selling out? Well, that's only, only one explanation. One word. Unbelief. Either we don't believe the kingdom of God exists, that Jesus is really all that, or we don't believe it's worth giving up everything. We believe Him, but it's really not worth letting go of everything in order to be so passionate about following Him. When it involves so much hardship, and it's not worth giving up so much potential success and pleasure in this life to follow Jesus when we don't even know what it might mean. Indeed, the cost is high. There are people right now around the world, and we don't know anything about this, but they're around the world right now who are recognizing that if they say yes to Jesus, that it is very likely at some point going to cost them their lives. Or they're going to be torn from their families and put in prison, put in jail. That's why when people told Jesus they wanted to follow Him, He would ask them in essence, are you sure about that? And this is hard. It's hard. Better count the cost before you say you're going to follow me. Now, I want to clarify something. We don't, it's not that we commit to live in this life so that God will be pleased with us and then accept us into heaven. Uh, unfortunately, so many people in America and really around the world are trying to work their way to heaven, but God's Word makes it abundantly clear that we can never be good enough for God to say, okay, I'll let you in. That's why Jesus had to come and set right what Adam had messed up and his perfect life made him a perfect sacrifice and substitute for us. And when we repent of our sins, when we see ourselves as God sees us, as sinners, apart from Him, and repent of our sins, which simply means to say, God, I'm done with this life. I give my life over to You. And then we believe that Jesus died on the cross for us. Then salvation instantly, immediately becomes ours. I can't tell you the number of times as a teenager that I tried to turn over a new leaf is the way we used to say it. And I, I was going to change. Life was going to be different. I'm not going to do this anymore. I was into drugs and all kinds of, just all kinds of stuff. And I, I was sick of it. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm different now. But I wasn't. But when I trusted Jesus, 
on May 1st of, of 1972, I knew immediately that something was different because it was something that he had done, not something that I was doing. It brought me to himself. And now, what, I who was un, incapable of changing my life was radically transformed by Jesus. The kingdom of God was immediately in my midst. The call to follow Jesus at a high level is given to those whose sins have been forgiven. And why wouldn't we want to follow Jesus? I mean, if we really, once again, if we really believe this, why wouldn't we want to follow Jesus. I know that if you are a Christ follower, there is something in your heart that wants to follow Him and wants to know Him and wants to serve Him at a higher level than you already do. The new person in you that is controlled by the Holy Spirit desires to give it all over to Jesus. But the old man that still lives inside of all of us wants its own way also. It's very much alive. And demanding its own way. And it can be frustrating when you seek to follow the Lord, but you find yourself falling again and again. You're just on your face as much as you are up. But, but understand this. There is a difference of seeking the kingdom of God, seeking to follow the Lord, and falling down, and then getting confessing your sin and literally allowing Him to pick you up rather than you trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Confessing your sin is a big difference in that and, and living with one foot over here and one foot over here. Completely different. You, you gotta go for it all the way for it to mean anything. You can't do it halfway. And when you go for it, you're gonna blow it. For all kinds of different reasons. Even your passion to serve the Lord is gonna get you in trouble. The flesh is very good at imitating the things of God, but it is rotten at getting it done right. It, it just doesn't. So, God's kingdom is in our midst. It's all around us. It's any place where Jesus rules His people. We're in the already not yet stage. So perfection isn't a possibility. A couple of years ago, we went through the book of Philippians. And in Philippians 3, Paul says, I follow after everything in me follows after the Lord. But I haven't achieved it yet. A lot of the people who study Scripture very carefully seem to think that Paul was actually mocking people who indicated that they had reached a place of perfection. But then he turned right around and said, but I want you to know something. My desire is to follow after him with everything in me. I haven't made it, but that doesn't stop me from pursuing him with everything I've got. You know what? Our failures serve to remind us that not only salvation is by grace, but so is our relationship with Jesus and our service for Him. Anything good that happens in our life, lives has to be because of God's grace. Even our obedience to His rule, God's grace has to be active in our lives if it's going to happen. Kingdom living begins with a major choice to follow Jesus. But it's a decision that we have to make, not day by day, 
but minute by minute. Which is why the Apostle Paul said, I die every day to myself. I am continually dying to my desires, my plans, my own personal pursuits. There are times, though, when we need to be reminded of the big picture. That there are two kingdoms, but only one life. There are times that we need to be reminded that while life seems to present limitless choices, there are really only two choices for the Christ follower. Everything else is just sort of ancillary. It's sort of secondary. Either we're going to follow God or we're going to follow our own way. Jesus is going to be our king or we're going to be our own kings and queens. This is one of those times. To think about Who's ruling? Jesus or me? We've talked a lot about the cost of living in God's kingdom. What's the benefit? Well, that's really very evident. It's a one-word answer again. Jesus is the benefit. Jesus is the benefit. And if that doesn't seem like that big a deal to you, then there's a problem in, in, in your belief. Once again, it's back to belief or unbelief. When you're so young and full of energy and and the world is so alive to you, it's easy to take the value of the kingdom for granted and to, and to just not think that much about Jesus. But He wants your passion and your energy now. Don't look back as so many do and regret not having given Him more at a young stage of life, at a younger stage of life, earlier stage. As you age, you're going to gain perspective. You're going to see... Boy, things that I used to think were important just aren't. I, I, man, do I say that. Now, things that used to seem such a big deal aren't anymore. But don't look back with all of these incredible regrets. Make your decision to follow Him right now. I, I want to close with one of Jesus' very, uh, many, very clear calls to follow Him. Um, <laughs> whenever Jesus said, you need to follow me, it's not as clear as I want it to be about salvation and discipleship. It's just a call that has huge consequences if it's rejected. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38 will delineate the benefits of giving your heart completely to Jesus and the danger of living for yourself. And especially those of you who are here today and you have just walked away from the rule of your tyrannical parents, you know, who demanded that you be in at a certain time and be sober when you drive and things like that. Ridiculous rules like that. You got a lot of freedom in front of you. You got a lot of choices to make. Listen to Jesus' call. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples. This was a, a, a call that He made to everybody. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, Luke 29, 9.23 says, and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. It's basically, he's saying, just give up your own desires and the things that would please you. Follow me. And it's not going to be easy. If you want to follow me, here's what you're getting into. But, he tells us in verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. A paradox for sure. It makes no sense, especially when we're being told constantly of how we need to prepare for ourselves and take care of ourselves and and you deserve it. And I said, look, you really want to save your life? Give it up for my sake and for the gospels. And when we share the gospel, when we tell people that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that his death on the cross was very significant and we, we have to have... Faith in Him because His death is the only thing that qualifies us to be in heaven. Not our own strength. We're not getting there because of the good things that we do. And the cross was more than an example. People don't like to hear that. I don't understand why people don't want to hear that salvation is a free gift. All you got to do is repent and believe. Well, maybe it's because of all of this demand that Jesus makes. But that's not what they're thinking about. They just don't want to say, they just don't want us to say, my way is better than your way. Well, it ain't my way, it's his way. It's what he's calling for, to believe him. And when we do believe and we follow him with everything in us, then we save our lives. You think that the way to save your life is to get a good job and to make good decisions and to prepare for retirement. I want to tell you, None of that matters. When they tell your wife it's a brain tumor and you're not going to live, none of that matters. But that doesn't clear everything up for me. I mean, I still have the kingdom of me. I still very much care about me. And I can tell you, none of it is going to matter when we see Jesus. None of it. Except that which we've given to Him. For whoever would save His life will lose it, but whoever loses His life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This life is so short and getting shorter all the time. Someone said the other day, the days are long, but the years are flying. And I understand that. Time's moving on. And on my side of the hill, it moves much quicker than it does on the side of the hill that some of you, most of you are on. What can a man give in return for his soul? What? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And He is coming. He is coming. Let's pray.